Yeah, so, uh, so I'm out one night, right, and, uh, well, let me start from I, I used to love Pac-Man. I could play Pac-Man for hours every day. I remember, like, it, when I was, like, 14 and, like, or whatever, around, like, the early 90s, digging out my old Atari 7800, right, and just plugging in that Pac-Man cartridge, and I'd go for, like, eight hours at a time. I just, I, I don't know if that's something great about the game or awful about me, but <laughs> whatever, I loved it. And I never really progressed past that point as as a gamer. I didn't even know if I was a gamer. I just loved Pac-Man. But uh, so, yeah, I never I never really got. I, I guess the last video game I really got into was like Mario Kart or something. So you're you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm a luddite. I know. Forgive me, please. Uh, but there's this awesome bar. I live in Jersey City, and there's this great bar called Barcade, which opened up a few months ago. And it's all great craft beers on tap and retro games. They got, like, the old Star Wars game where you sit in the thing and you're piloting the X-Wing and stuff. And they got Rampage. I used to love Rampage. Man, the Wolfman, that's my guy. You can you can put in your quarter and play with me, but you got Godzilla or King Kong. I am the Wolfman. Anyway, so... Uh, I meet these girls at this other bar. Gorgeous, like, young girls. They should not be talking to a guy like me, an older type. Yeah, they're just... But anyway, somehow I luck into talking to these girls, and we all go over to Barcade and decide to hang out. And we get into this Pac-Man tournament, this Miss Pac-Man tournament. Miss Pac-Man, no less. Miss Pac-Man tournament. And, uh, and it started out with me flirting with the girls and thinking, wow, I'm actually, I may have a shot at maybe going home with a good-looking girl 10 years my junior. And then progressed to like, a really heated Miss Pac-Man competition and then turned into me just kind of playing Miss Pac-Man for a while and turning around, and they were gone. So that... that I don't know if that's an endorsement of Pac-Man or not. It's like heroin's the greatest thing ever, but it could ruin your life. I don't know, but... That's the love. I, I, I can't say that, I, that I'm up on, on the video games and your Call of Duties and whatever you kids are doing these days. Man, but me and Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man, sorry Pac-Man, I, you know, we got a side thing going. But we go way back and, uh, and, I, and I love it and that's, that's my story. So, uh, my name is Craig Mahoney. I am a stand-up comic and uh, I am a Gamerati. Gamerati.com it's good to be a gamer. Vopo Network is the bomb. The cutting edge of geekdom. Comics, advice, D&D. Movies, video games, RPGs. Finding it's easy, just stay calm. VorpalNetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all types, and listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon Store. Hey, this is Mike Merles, lead developer of 4th Edition, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, we're going to delve into the psyche of Michael Malin, the id DM, and pull out some advice. Michael, welcome to the show, sir. Yes, thank you. Great to be here. And uh, we're going to get to know you a little bit more in a bit, but first we wanted to get go through some news stuff, uh, and as tends to be the norm around here these days, the, uh, the big news is all about discussion that, that's going on about D&D Next. So we've got a handful of blog articles and things to, to chat about. The first on our list is the Legends and Lore article that came out just today, at least the day that we're recording, um, about... Balancing the the wizard. Uh, historically, wizards have been troublesome in previous editions for balance. Uh, you know, the first and second edition sort of trope, and I would argue even the the third edition trope was that wizards start off weaker than everybody else, but by the 
as you get higher and higher level, they, they sort of pass everybody and become the most powerful class of it all. So you, uh, you pay early on in your adventuring career in order to be awesome later. And it seems like um, they're trying not to have that happen this time around. Does that seem accurate? Yeah. Any thoughts about um, that article and what they have to say, Tracy? Uh, if they can make it so the wizard... I, I don't like it when the wizard gets really powerful compared to the other characters in higher levels, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. But they did bring up the interesting thing that sometimes it's about the combination of spells that are available. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I definitely know in my Pathfinder game that comes up sometimes, like my barbarian just sits there. Yeah, because the wizard can sort of do everything depending on the selection they picked. Right, and and they want to do the combination first, and I can, I mean, a barbarian's an upfront creature. Like you want to uh, charge and everything, so it's just like, well, let's see if the spells work first, and then we'll. But Ooh. I'm also a gunslinger, so I have that part. Sure. Now, the the one thing that sort of caught my attention that I, I feel like it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Mm-hmm. is the bit about, um, you know, traditionally, wizard spells have scaled with level. So the more powerful you are, the more powerful your spells are. Mm-hmm. So if you memorize the third level spell, the fireball spell, it is a better spell when you're 10th level than it, it is when you're, you know, 6th level or whatever, in the amount of damage it does and all that kind of stuff. That is not how they're going to, how they're thinking about doing things. Right. They talk about how instead they're looking at if you want to have a more powerful version of Fireball, you actually have to use a higher slot, a higher level slot to to prepare that spell with. Right. I think that makes sense because a spells per day thing, right? Mm-hmm. In the past, that's what you've done, but that it would be kind of weird to have your lower level spells increase plus get additional slots each day. And by, I mean, not and, each day, but... Uh, and, and by weird, you mean the exact way it's been done for three editions? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I'm saying, but in the past, they were okay with the wizards, I think, like, having that trade-off, right, between low level and high level. Oh, sure. So the thing is, is if, you're, if, you're, if you don't want to have that trade-off, it would be difficult to both have the lower level spells scale plus have access to higher level spells. Sure. My only concern is that there's a combination of things going on, and it leaves me a little bit concerned. Um, and, and ultimately, we have no idea how it's going to work until we actually get to sit down and play with, with those rules, right? Right. Um, the, the fact that you have... They're, they're talking about giving the wizard fewer spell slots, period, mm-hmm. th- than they've had in the past, because, and make up for it a little bit with these uh, at-will sort of cantrip attacks. So they've always got something they can do. Um, and then they're saying that if you want to have a more powerful version of certain spells, you have to use up a higher slot, which there's fewer of. Mm-hmm. And so there's this serious sort of cost to, to doing those things, right? I mean, if you want to take the higher level fireball, as you know, there's a, there's a pretty serious cost because not, now not only are you giving up one of your higher level slots, but you're giving up a higher level slot at all, which you probably have very few of, if, you know, if any. And it might just eat up everything you have. And then you, there's also the issue of, and now do those lower level slots just become useless? They, may they, should they just not be there at all? Because nobody's ever going to cast the third level version of Fireball when they are using when they're you know twelfth level. I, well, I'm not I'm not sure that's entirely true. It, it depends on how the monster mass scales, right? I suppose. I mean, I mean, one of the things they've talked about in the past, I thought, was that uh, monsters, lower level monsters, would stay relevant longer. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if if the even if the damage stays low at, with lower level slots, if the to-hit chance changes as you go up in level, then it might scale okay. I mean, it's still you know better than doing the, the at-will cantrip during, right. the, during the third level fireball, as long as you still have a chan- chance of hitting because, right. because well, that and, scales. And, and the, it also depends on what uh, other spells are available. Uh, I don't know about D&D Next, but I know... Grease is a common one in our Pathfinder game that we use all the time, and Web. Mm-hmm. And I think those are lower level s- spells that still um, mm-hmm. can do some good stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's not damage, so it's not concentrated on damage. So you might start. You, I could see a situation, depending on how the rules are actually written, of uh, you, you start doing uh, utility spells as your lower level stuff. 
Yeah, I consider that too. That that might be sort of a, a good way to encourage people to to try out some more unique combinations. You know, do pick some spells that that aren't just blowing stuff up. Right. Uh, and I know somebody else. I think it was Dread Gazebo Jerry brought up the limits on wands. How many spells that even if you had like he thought. He had mentioned that even if you had a staff or a wand with with spells in him, that you might only have to be able to do a certain number of day. But I don't know much more about it than that. Yeah, and the the that's the other thing that that we'll see how it goes, right? With the whole uh, wand and scroll limitations that they're talking about, like scrolls will actually use up one of your spell slots, just give you the versatility of doing something else with it. Right. Um, and that wands will only be useful for a, a limited. Um, number of spells. There's only certain spells that can be put into a wand or used with a wand or whatever. All of that might work and maybe funky. I mean, there's just such a wide variety of possible combinations of ways this whole thing could play out that until you've got, you know, hundreds of people playing it and testing it and doing it, uh, I don't think we'll have any idea of really if it works or how it works. Yeah. Because one of the interesting things I know in uh, another Pathfinder game I played people use the healing uh they had a wand of healing or something like that mm-hmm. and so that way we didn't have to have uh somebody who is a healing right although, although i know in previous editions and you know in third edition especially um being the wizard with wands was always the solution to the fact that there was no such thing as an at will you know right oh great I've, i don't need an at will i've got my wand of magic missiles that's my at will which isn't technically at will it's got a limited number of charges but it's enough to get through several adventures well, and particularly when you can do 50 or so in a, in a wand. Right, exactly. For not that much cost, really. Michael, I know you haven't read the article, but based on what we've chatted about, any any thoughts? Well, I just find it interesting. I'm certainly most familiar with 4th edition and how characters scale over time that way. One thing that you mentioned that I, I am finding a bit of a challenge now is some of the combinations of powers that parties can put together that can just blast through things which I think that's probably an issue in any game system. Uh, I'm curious how they'll try to navigate that with, with D&D Next, about with so many powers and so many different feats, to have five or six players creating characters and playing off one another. That seems to be the issue for me as a DM is trying to control players who are making perfectly legal decisions with their character builds and just steamrolling through sure. encounters. Um, so that's somewhat related, but right. in terms of in terms of the wizard, we had a, I had a player in my campaign who was playing a wizard in fourth edition, and he he got a little bored with it after a while, and he actually switched over to a barbarian. Hmm. Um, so I don't, I think the I like the idea of wizards being able to do a lot more than just cause damage. I think that would open up a lot of really interesting options for role-playing and some other tactical types of things rather than just, like you said, throwing fireballs and magic missiles and trying to clear things out as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the idea of all these combinations, and, and every edition is a little bit better at this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then you have to run this balance of creating tons of options, which opens up crazy combinations, to giving people the options that they want, right? I mean, everybody seems always wants more and more and more and more and more, but every time you do that, it it creates more strange combinations that can be unbalancing or whatever, so... Yeah, and and Rob kind of mentions that a little bit also in the Feats article. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, because avoiding choice traps Feats. The main question in that one is, traditionally Feats have uh, covered a variety of roles, both combat and out of combat, uses mm-hmm. and so the question is that he has is do we want to just limit feats to combat um and let other parts of character creation uh cover things like the role playing and exploration mm-hmm. and and he seemed they seem to be leaning towards the idea that feats are just going to be combat stuff right and then other things are going to fill in role playing and exploration which they consider to be the three sort of pillars of what you do in D D. right and, and I think it's kind of cool because I know things like Cleave <clears throat> used to be a feat, but became a power in 4th edition. So you could have stuff like that come back, where through your choice of feats, it could be more like powers. I don't know for sure if that's what they're going to do, but mm-hmm. I just thought it was an interesting thing. 
Because right now, it, I, it seems that most fourth edition feats are either combat related or maybe a bonus to different skill checks. Or at least the ones that people pick. Right. Right. <laughs> Which I think is part of their point is that mm-hmm. they might, they may, you may create feats that Im- impact role playing and exploration, all that kind of stuff, but people just pick the ones that impact combat. And so there's no point in, in designing those. But if they just say feats do combat, then they have the room to do other things that impact role playing and exploration, that kind of stuff. And so there's more of an opportunity to get people to choose them, right? Because you're not giving up a combat boost in order to take those other things. Right. Yeah, I think that sounds like an interesting idea, sure. Yeah, and I, and I think also it gives, to me, it gives a more story focus to a part of character creation that before was was purely, seemed pretty purely mechanical. Um, like with feat selection, because it could be any type of uh, addition to your character. Mm-hmm. It it wasn't like you're you were saying, oh, this is how uh, I am good at combat. You're you're just like this is what my character gets to do in this thing called feats. Mm-hmm. That was totally arbitrary <laughs> and only mechanical. Yeah, and I I find um, that just the concept that the, what they consider to be the three pillars of what D and D is is combat, role playing, and exploration is kind of interesting to to look at as well, um, since that's sort of a guiding principle of of what they're doing with the game right Mm -hmm. Uh, because I I don't think they're wrong but I'm not sure that they're equal size pillars well I don't think they have to be equal size I think I think in most of the games I've played exploration is a much smaller pillar than the other two yeah although that might be because it hasn't been clearly brought out before for a while at least but I'm not sure and, and yet and yet at the same time it depends on how you talk about exploration I mean I suppose if you're talking about exploring the story and the cultures of the setting and that kind of stuff, then then there is a fair amount of exploration in my games. If it's actually like exploring a dungeon or exploring a new location or whatever, there's not a ton of that in my games. And I, and you're right. I don't know if is it chicken or the egg. Is it is am I not doing it because they haven't given me the tools to make to make that stand out in my head, or am I just not doing it because or, you know, or do those tools right. not exist because you know, or I'm not noticing them because I'm not particularly interested in it. I don't know. And, and it might be the addition thing because I know I know a lot of people who do the the hex maps and they do exploration through there yeah. uh, and everything. I, I know I still know people who do the draw. You draw out the dungeon as you go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not good at that. I am not good <laughs> at mapping. I need player bonuses on that one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so we talked about the feats and being the combat. They also had the wizard with the license to kill uh, with themes and backgrounds and what role they're going to have. Yes, because they talked about the idea of um, using themes and backgrounds to making your characters possibly different than the stereotype. You know, right. that you can have a wizard who is taking themes and backgrounds that make them stealthy and more spy-like, you know, which is typically sort of the roguish sort of role. Mm-hmm. I'm conflicted. Oh, I love this. <laughs> I, I love it. I figured you would. I'm conflicted. On one hand, I love being free to choose I love the freedom on the other hand I also love archetypes and the tropes so I guess I like there being rules and then occasionally being able to break them I like being able to break them all the time but more than <laughs> that uh, so the thing is is I, I think there's a possibility like I think they recognize that right that there are some people who really want to reinforce it so I wouldn't be surprised if there were uh, ways of reinforcing it reinforcing one common trope through all the pillars Mm -hmm. and then there are ways to break it the other thing i i really like about breaking it out is that it's it's an easy way for people to get into designing stuff Mm -hmm. because the thing is with with exploration and role-playing i think there's a a greater chance uh if you're not as good at the crunchy math that you would want to do for uh, like 40 powers that you would have a lot of room to be able to create your own stuff and not have to to worry about being an expert at uh, how everything is going to interact yeah I think that's right and, and it'll be interesting to see sort of what every addition to me um, has an impact on certain people to become designers or encourages certain people to become designers right I never would have dreamed of trying to design anything in second edition in third edition, 
I played around with it, but never considered myself good enough to, to take it seriously. And in 4th edition, I feel like I've really got a good handle on it. But I know some people really grokked the 3rd the edition system, right? And they, they were designing all over the place on that. And I just feel like it, it, it touches different people in different ways. And so what you're talking about says that this could t- grab a whole different group of people as possible designers specializing in designing a whole different realm of the game. Right, and, and these things are much more story-based. It can be, I think. Um, and, and that's the other thing that I really like about it is that even DMs could create their own uh, highly integrated, it, I think, uh, highly integrated into their story uh, themes and backgrounds uh, that the players can choose from. Mm-hmm. So that's D&D Next stuff that we're going to talk about tonight, and we've already talked a long time on that, so let's uh, move on to other things. We talked about the Tome News. Tome, tome News. The first you, you need to talk about the first one because it's all you. I'm out of this. I get to plan episode 200. And I've gotten a few ma- emails so far with ideas. I cannot share what they are because Jeff wants to be completely surprised. <laughs> uh, so you can always email me at tracy at saradarkmagic.com if, if you have any ideas of what you might like to see. Uh, beyond that, we are going to be at Gen Con. And we are going to do live podcast recordings, and you should all show up. We're doing um, a Tome Show advice ep- episode live uh, on Friday at 6. But the one I know you definitely want to be at, Tracy, yes. is the Gamer to Gamer Live. We called in some special awesomeness for the Gen Con episode, and he's going to be talking to Chris Perkins. I'm excited, because he's, he's one of the reasons I started playing D&D. Mm-hmm. And why I wanted to be a DM, so I'm really excited about this one. And then our other one is going to be, we're doing a live recording of uh, Behind the DM Screen, which is uh, Saturday at 7, so Gamer to Gamer is at Saturday at 6, Behind the DM Screen is at 7, it's in the same room, in fact all three of them are in the same place, um, just different nights or whatever. So the they're all in the uh, Crown Plaza, Victoria Stations, room C slash D. Mm-hmm. So people should come and, and check that out. It's going to be awesome. All right. That's enough chit-chat. Let's let's di- get down into it. Yeah, so before we go much further uh, in discussing all the great advice that Michael's going to have, we should learn a little bit more about Michael. So, Michael, tell us about yourself. Yes, yeah, so, and thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been fun uh, just talking so far. Um, I started playing D&D 4E about, uh, I don't know, maybe three years ago after taking a break for about 15 plus years uh, from playing role-playing games, just was busy with college and graduate school and everything else. I am currently a psychologist, which is a lot of the influence for some of the articles I write on my on my blog, which is the idDM at wordpress.com. So I'm just playing in a couple of campaigns now. One is a DM, one is a player, and just you know, paying attention to the online community, which has been thoroughly welcoming and uh, pleasant to me, and just benefiting from everyone else's advice and suggestions, and trying to make trying to make a d- decent game for my players each time we get together. So that's my main my main focus of um, both running the blog and just paying attention to all the great D and D news and advice that's out there. Well, I feel like you sort of first exploded on the scene, so to speak, when. Uh... <laughs> That's you, hilarious. When you went crazy in depth in terms of like your your study of the Penny Arcade um, actual play podcast that Wizards of the Coast put out, and you timed out each round and how long it took and, and tracked all this stuff, and then you did some you did similar stuff with what was it uh, powers in certain classes. Yes, I had originally thought I would do the the uh, analysis on every power for every class, and after I did one, I realized <laughs> I think the next edition would be out by the time I finished. So. <laughs> I just decided to do one from each role, and you know that has its own problems. But I thought the results were pretty interesting. I just, I just love the fact that many people sort of use their anecdotal experience and their their analysis of reading through the rules to to make calls about how they think things work. Um, and you take the time to actually do the research and crunch some numbers and find out how things actually work although sometimes the results aren't surprising sometimes you're coming to similar conclusions um, but the fact that you can actually back it up 
you know? Right. Well, you were talking about Chris Perkins before, and I joked on a previous podcast that the research I did with him DMing the Penny Arcade um, and PV, PvP guys, like his DM turns were like 30 seconds. Right. I don't know. He was using magic, I think. Um, he may, he, yeah, he no. may not be a, a good example of sort of the typical game <laughs> session when, when Chris Perkins is DMing. Yeah, not a good thing to be like, oh, maybe I can do that. No, I, I can't do that yet. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I tend to, I think that's how I found, if, if you would call it a niche, but that's how my blog got started a couple years ago when there was a lot of conjecture about combat speed and how to speed it up and what's wrong with it. But I looked around all over the place and couldn't find any... Uh, data to support one claim or the other uh-huh. so so I decided to produce the data myself and then organize it and put it out there so that took way longer than I would <laughs> say I love that you're doing it because I'm never going to take the time to <laughs> but it, w- it was worth it and when I when I put it out there uh, I got some nice response people actually paid attention to it I mean I was just happy to get one comment on the site and it fueled me to keep writing about things, and uh, yeah, that definitely helped to get noticed, to have something unique to add to the conversation that goes on. Absolutely. Right on. So anything that you're looking into right now that people should be looking for on uh, your website? I don't have any new research studies in the process. Uh, like I said, I think playtesting D&D Next, that might be something that would be good fodder for a different kind of analysis that maybe other people wouldn't have the interest or patience to do. <laughs> uh, maybe some type of specific time analysis of combat or something else. Depends on you know, what the rules are and how that comes about. Um, but yeah, my, my articles tend to be things that just are interesting me at the moment and I'll decide to write about it. I have a few things coming up, some interviews. I have an interview series that I do. Uh, with the, with a few folks I'm in the process of right now, so I usually post one to two articles a week, and I have a monster series over at This Is My Game, which has been fun to work on. So I certainly keep busy, which it keeps me probably too busy from actually preparing for my games, but uh, that's another issue entirely. <laughs> no, but that's awesome that you can keep up that pace. I, I've I worked really hard for a good year on temporary hit points to keep up a pace of at least once a week. And uh, this, the second year has been much harder to keep that up. You know, I did it really well for about a year, for about a year, and then it's just really hard to keep that pace up and do everything else that I need to do too. Yeah. Yeah, and I just entered the second year of the blog in back in March, so mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep that energy level up. Keep it going. Keep it going. And didn't you uh, recently win an award? I did, and I feel very grateful for that. I was up. I was nominated for the website Stuffer Shack. They were hosting a RPG Site of the Year contest. And I had won their Site of the Month last summer, I think back in June. So it kind of automatically uh, put me into consideration. And there was a first round of voting, and apparently I made it through by one vote. So everybody that voted for me, thank you. (laughs) And then there was a panel of judges that had the top five had selected me, so I was very surprised and, uh, you know, certainly thrilled. It was very cool. Um, I just received a whole bunch of loot today for winning that, some dice and a Dragon Child dice bag and some really cool books, so it it was uh, very rewarding. It was very exciting. Right on. So you're, you're not just a blogger, you're an award-winning blogger. Yeah, I said that to my wife, and she laughed at me. <laughs> She's like, don't ever say that in public. <laughs> like, it's true. Um, yeah, so that's, again, I, it's very humbling to be part of uh, the community, and I, I'm certainly a newer kid on the block. So um, I'm just happy to be involved in the conversation most days with other people online, on either through comments or Twitter, or you know, having the privilege to do a podcast like this. It's, uh, it's it's a far cry from what I was doing last February, um, just kind of running my own game and lurking through different websites and trying to get advice to keep my campaign going. Mm-hmm. Right on. So w- today we're going to be talking about two different things. Uh, we have a player advice segment. We're going to talk, talk about how to 
sort of stay engaged at the table. Um, and then we're also going to give some DM advice on talking about prep time and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but before we get into all that, we need to take a break and hear from our sponsor, Continue Magazine. It is a quarterly magazine all about gaming. And by all about gaming, I mean all sorts of gaming. Video games, board games, role-playing games. If you play games, Continue Magazine is written for you. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. All right, so now let's get down to the advice. And in particular, we're going to start off a little something for the players. So, Michael, you want to talk about what makes a good player? What, yeah, makes, had- what makes an engaged player? Yes, that would certainly be one thing that makes a good player. And I think with the multitude of distractions that we can have around the table, I think staying engaged and staying uh, attentive to what's happening is really a, a challenge at times with use of phones, laptops, iPads, and some of those devices are out on the table to actually play the game. I know many of my players, both in the campaign IDM and uh, the game where I'm the aforementioned Dragonborn Rogue, um, they have character sheets on through their iPads or through their laptops, so they're already open and out in front of them. And being connected to the internet at all times, or taking phone calls, or being able to watch video clips, or anything else at the touch of a button, it's it's tough not to be distracted. So I I think one of the challenges for a group is to decide on how much of that is okay. And I think it's very important to discuss that with with the certainly with the DM but also with all the other players I think each group has a different comfort level with that I wonder what your groups are like with that regard yeah I feel like my group is has become a bit more relaxed over time over the whole thing right I feel like at the beginning I was I was very much mr. Um, don't bring your distractions and your other things into my game uh, or at my game table, and then, and every now and then, I'd have one player in particular who has issues with attention. Um, would you know be off playing with a, a deck of cards, and then it was you know getting out his phone and what have you. Um, and slowly over time, it's just crept in more and more and more. And then I took a, a turn uh, playing instead of DMing, and I put all of my characters on on my iPad. And then find myself doing the exact same thing because it's you know it's ten or fifteen minutes in between rounds and I get bored <laughs> you know and it's and it's not it's not me uh, not being engaged but it was you know it was just an issue of I've got nothing to do for ten, 10 minutes I need something to keep myself going or else my brain's gonna fall asleep and I'll, I won't be paying attention to anything you know so I, I struggle with it you know it's it's one of those things where I want the pe- players to be engaged and paying attention because something could be happening important to them or they're going to inevitably ask those questions hey what's this all about and it's like well I just explained that and <laughs> pay attention um, but on the other hand I totally get it because we're in, t- we're in you know upper epic tier and combats take a long time yeah and as you mentioned being a player it's certainly when you're having combat even if combat's running quickly you're waiting at least 10 minutes or more and if you're just sitting there listening to other people try to figure out what attack they want doing math <laughs> rolling attack rolls figuring out damage where are they going to move you know it if you have the ability to go on twitter or watch clips from youtube or play some game on your ipad it's it's kind of hard not to do something else even if it's just talking to another player in the group about something completely off topic from the game Um, And it's a challenge for for the DM, and one thing that I've used that distraction for is to really get very good feedback and communication about what's working in the game and what's not. Um, So if a player is 
getting up from the table or on their iPad or just doing something where they're not engaged, it's really good information to know that whatever's happening at the table right now isn't their, isn't their cup of tea. Yeah. Um, so you can adjust the game on, on the fly, which gets into a little bit of DM advice. Um, but I, I think another good player tip is that you, know, you shouldn't just rely on the DM to steer the ship. If, if you feel like there's another player who's going astray or maybe detracting from the enjoyment of the game of other people, to you know, be okay to point that out and try to get everyone back in the fold. Um, and I know that's a little bit more of a touchier subject because I think most groups, the DM is the leader, so to speak. Uh, sometimes it's the host. I think that's another person that has a, a pivotal role in setting the norms for the group. Um, if the host doesn't want people to be on those types of devices or distracted, then I think everyone kind of has to play by her or his rules. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. And again, what what have you seen in that regard? Tracy? I don't know. I mean, most of my players have been really good. I once DM'd uh, for a friend of, of my brother's, and she kept leaving the table, and that really annoyed me, and I just don't I, I don't want to run for her again. Uh, uh, but the the other thing I have a hard problem with, hard time with, is that I, Jeff, you mentioned that if if you're not engaged, it's like your brain kind of powers down. Mm-hmm. And I particularly with the fact that we often play on weeknights, uh, I can I can't go more than two hours or something on the game and not do anything else during that time period. <laughs> Like, two hours, I think, starts to get my limit because I just need my brain to be active for something else uh, to re-energize it. And I don't think... I don't know if there's anything that the DM could really do in that in that case. Uh, it's just the downtime of other things are happening. And it happens in both my Pathfinder game and my 4E game, so it's not necessarily just 4E. No, absolutely. I think that one of the things that I've done is I've tried to... Um... I've tried to encourage players who have a hard time being engaged when it's not their turn. I've given them other jobs to do, right? Yeah. Uh, we use the Alia Tools uh, magnets to mark conditions on the map. And so I've taken a player and I've just said, look, you, it's your job to be in charge of the magnets. So now you've got to pay attention to everything going on because if we need a bloody token or if we need an ongoing damage token or whatever, it's your job to get it out there. And then we're moving along. Um, you know, As a DM, I, whenever monsters are recharging powers... Mm-hmm. I always I always have players roll the D6 to find out if the power recharges. And I always sort of pick a random player who's otherwise not really paying that much attention, you know? And and I and I I'm it's interesting because there are some players that I call on a lot and other players I I don't call on at all ever to to roll those make those rolls and I and I wonder if they've picked up on why I'm picking and picking people and and who I'm picking and all that. They will now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know there's been I, I sometimes do off Turns, skill checks. Um, one thing I've, I've tried to do to spice up combat a little bit is to, and this gets a little bit into the prep conversation we talk about in the future, is to write some some dialogue for the bad guys. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a series of mm-hmm. attack and damage rolls. You can spice up the encounter by actually having some communication with with the monsters and the PCs, and that you know can be a way to get everyone involved. Even just taunting a specific player who doesn't seem to be paying attention, you know, that will usually snap their attention up pretty quick. If you know you make yeah. fun of the halfling or something, and you know they get defensive and they want to, you know, get a little bit more eager for their turn. Um, so that, you know, certainly I think that's something you can uh, do to try to keep people involved. Yeah. yeah but- the, the other one would be um, waves of combatants having not having everyone just come in at once. Because once you're pretty sure of what the board looks like, I know it's bad to say board, but that's what it is a lot of times, uh, it's easier to just check out because you're like, oh, I know it's what I'm already going to do, so I don't need to pay attention unless somebody kills something, but that's pretty, that takes like, what, two seconds to recognize. Mm-hmm. So, um, but if, if, if the guy thinks he's fine and suddenly there's a bugbear behind him, that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And you actually brought up a really good point, Michael, that um, because... At least with a lot of my players, the ones who are engaged, uh, what, or the ones who disengage sometimes, will always come back and be reengaged when there's story and role playing going on. 
And one of the things I, I didn't do a good job of early on in my current gaming group was establish that we're going to integrate a lot of role-playing and description and story into the combats. And so that's just sort of – the precedent's been set. That's just not something we do a lot of. Okay. And, and, you know, and then the group's been together now for you know, four years, and so that's a hard precedent to sort of change. And, and I'm working towards it, but, but at the same time, I, I, I feel like if some of those conversations were happening during the combat and if people were describing, oh, yeah, I, I – I don't just I hit it with this power, but but rather I, you know, I cut off a limb, or you know, they got into a little bit more description about what they were doing and how they were doing it. I think then you're integrating the role playing and the story into the combat, and it hooks people back in to pay attention. Yeah, one thing I've been doing recently is it's it's not off turn, but anytime uh, one of the players kills something, I, I tell them to describe how how the monster died, uh-huh. and that's produced some. <laughs> memorable moments both with people being very non-descriptive <laughs> which has been somewhat humorous when someone just says um, yeah he falls down <laughs> <laughs> um, and everyone else is like that's it that's all that happened and other people going on 45 second to a minute do- do- monologues about how they, they killed something which, which is also fun so yeah I would just try to shake things up a uh-huh. little bit I like that as I like that as idea as a way to sort of start to introduce it back into my group. Like I've started to try to do it here and there, but I like that idea of well, let's just start with kills. You know, when yeah. you kill something, describe it. Well, you know? and I feel new players in particular, like they may not know how to describe a combat scene, but if you tell them, hey, describe how you just totally obliterated that kobold, they will come through. Mm-hmm. And I also like the idea that you're having the players do it because. Uh, as a DM, I, I can try to do it, but that's still one person at the table that's now trying to get everybody engaged. And it's not that one player person's job, right? Um, and that's sort of the whole point of this segment, right? We want players to be involved in getting themselves and each other engaged in what's going on, even when it's not their turn. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, and even if there are a player out there and you're, maybe your DM's not listening to, to this podcast and, and shame on him or her for that. <laughs> get, get, <laughs> give him the URL. Get him over here. Um, but... To have, you know, if you're a player feel empowered to do things like that, when one of your colleagues kills something, ask, like, hey, how, how'd you kill that? Like, what did it look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just to, again, take that burden off the DM to always be the one that's encouraging role-playing and kind of steering players in the, in the not the right direction, but in a direction where people are more engaged more mm-hmm. often. And uh, we, we should probably say, too, that there are a few things that you might not want to do to to under the guise of encouraging uh, involvement and engagement and like things like uh, telling the other person how to do their character yeah that's certainly you know in terms of breaking things down in terms of what a DM wants from players I mean for me attend reliably and if you're not going to make it let me know in advance just play nice with others which I think is what uh, Trace was talking about and uh, just you know be willing to contribute to the game and, and that can mean several different things. But in terms of when I'm playing and what I like in other players is for players to be cooperative and be respectful, um, not to be overly competitive. competitive. And you know, like you were saying, don't play someone else's character. Um, and if you feel absolutely compelled to offer advice or suggestions, then to definitely ask permission first before saying something like, Hey, you should heal me, and then do this power, and move here, and then hey, you you should do tired of iron and kill these guys. Um, and I have that I have that tendency too. I've done it before. I've gotten called out for it before. So I, I'm far from perfect. Um, and I, I certainly feel some roles get that more often. Like if you're a cleric, <laughs> heavens, I think you got everyone telling you who to heal and what to do. Um, so I think it's certainly a challenge. I think you want to be cooperative and you know, be helpful, but at the same time, be respectful that someone else is playing the game and think about how you feel when someone tells you what to do and, you know, how you usually respond to that. So Tracy smash. (laughs) Yeah. So you're not a fan of that either. No, I don't like it when people tell me what to do with my character. (laughs) But I've got this really good idea on what you should be doing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? I have a really good idea now. My dagger is going to find a nice new home. <laughs> well, and I wonder, it just kind of dawned on me, do you ever see that in more of the role-playing sense, or is it mostly combat? 
because combat is so specific and tactical and one action triggers off another action. I see it more in combat, and I think I see it more in combat because I have one or two players that are... One player who's very much my uh, rules lawyer okay. and one player who's who works with that player a lot and they're very much into the tactics of the game. And so sometimes people will default to them. You know, or hey, I was going to do this. Do you think this is a good time to do it? You know, they'll they'll actually they may actually seek that advice, or sometimes that advice will be given whether they're seeking it or not. <laughs> you know, and and I will oftentimes as a DM respond with, look, it's their character; they can decide what they want to do, and and they're pretty good about not doing it too often. But every now and then, uh, it comes up. Any other thoughts on? Uh, helping players stay engaged at the table? Hey, what about this dice thing? Oh, yeah. Uh, I know something that's come up at our table, and I've, I've done pretty well in stopping myself from doing it, but there's a great comic over at D20 Monkey, his uh, character, uh, Roly, who um, <laughs> kind of interrupts people and tells uh, what to do, the do's and don'ts of gaming. And when you count someone else's die roll for them, that uh, tends to be a big problem. Um, or saying, oh, you rolled 19, then you obviously hit. Or, you know, interrupting that whole process is just not a, a good thing to do. Again, if you feel like the person needs help, um, or in those special circumstances where it's late in the night and that player might be drunk and incapable of basic math, then certainly you can help them maybe compute their dice total. Um, <clears throat> but that's another thing that can, again, kind of talks about playing someone else's player or talking for that person to the DM, communicating for them to the DM. It's just sort of stepping on their toes and not cool. So don't do that. Don't do that. Got it. And you mentioned a, a, something on a website, so I have to take notes. Anytime people say mention websites, I have to take notes so I can get it in the show notes. <clears throat> it's totally in, the, the in the notes I sent. I saw that, actually. <laughs> I like the little owl. Yes. I yeah, like I mean, as a, as a DM, I the only thing I've really shut down is, like, I, I play a lot of music for the game, so and I pick music selectively. I wrote about that several months ago. But the one thing I have done is I've turned off the television, because that, mm-hmm. that does annoy me. Um, if the television's on, it's just a constant distraction for me and other people. Um, so I've people want to be on their phones or stuff, you know, they can do that, but I've, I've turned the television off, so... Whatever distractions you can minimize, I just encourage the group to do that. Mm-hmm. Right on. So do you want to talk about DM advice now for the preparation? Let's go into it. And, and, and this is an awesome topic because uh, there's been a lot of conversation on the concept of DM prep. And I know Mike Shea has been thinking about this for several months. Um, and so I think it's great that we're going to talk about it without him. Um, yes. <laughs> he's actually brought it up several times on Behind the DM Screen. Uh, the, and he's always sort of quizzing us on, um, Randall and I, on, on how we prep and how much time we spend doing what. And I think he sort of was doing that as a precursor to putting out his survey and the results to all that and what have you. So I'm kind of curious um, how we all prep and how it works and how we can help, how people can sort of make their prep work for them. So I think that's the first key. Like, I mean, what appropriate prep for one DM is not necessarily appropriate prep for another DM. And it also depends on the game, right? Some people mm-hmm. have, have different priorities and they really enjoy certain types of prep. Um, and I think some people don't necessarily need a lot of prep or maybe they do depending on what kind of game they're running. Right. Where do you want to start, Michael? Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go there. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, no okay. I, def- I definitely think that one size doesn't fit all for preparing a, a you know, role-playing game session. I know for me, I have a, I guess what would be considered a homebrew campaign where I pick and choose things from different campaign settings and kind of make them my own and reskin things. So I, I spend a, a probably way too much time thinking about my campaign throughout the two weeks before we play. But in terms of doing the nuts and bolts stuff of, you know, really sitting down and laying out the session and what's going to happen or what may happen in different paths that could that could take place depending on what the players choose, I tend to procrastinate so bad. Um, I do that too. I actually learned, so I, because we had a two-week uh, time period between games, usually two, 
although sometimes it's just one week. I, I tried to do it right away after this session before, and then I learned that the day before I always had the best idea ever, and that all of the other work didn't really do anything for me. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of times where I'm still planning the session while driving to, <laughs> to the game or while I'm setting up different terrain or drawing maps or the players are arriving and I'm typing seriously mm -hmm. on the laptop. I. I think I'm just I procrastinate in general. I think I get a lot done, but at the same time, I'm I'm not getting things. I do a lot of things that are are, pro, are keeping me away from doing something else I should be doing. I think the blog sometimes turns into that, where I could be preparing my game, but like, no, nah, I want to write an article about something else, and I'll do that for <laughs> days, and that fills up time. Mm -hmm. But I think the one the one thing that's very important, um, at least it has been for me, to at least realize what does and doesn't work for me is to, to monitor your time and I think that's what Mike Shea was trying to to get at is to make uh, DMs a bit more aware of how they spend their time, why they spend their time that way and how maybe they could spend their time more effectively. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely encourage everyone to you know take that survey, it's still out there, and look at the results that he's put together so far because um, he has some interesting suggestions about um, maybe how people are, are wasting their time and how to how to change that a bit. Well, and I think it's also worthwhile. I mean, as, as you're a DM and you're watching sort of what you're, what's happening at your table, uh, sort of figure out where are you getting the most bang. You know, when you're custom designing your monsters, is that something that's really meaningful? Because if it's not, don't spend so much time doing that. Just pull, start pulling things out of the compendium and, and use them as printed. You know. Uh, or maybe just do a quick reskin of something that's already there and of the right level. Uh, are pl your players really into your maps? Um, you know, and if they're not, don't go too elaborate with your maps and stuff. You know, if, that, if you're taking a lot of time on on that kind of thing. So I think it's a matter of paying attention to what's working and what's maybe not working as much in your game, and then spending your time in the areas that that really work. And not if if your players aren't into another aspect of it, then don't spend as much time on that. Yeah. And I'm pretty good at improving at the table, except for one area, which is naming anything. And so I try to have, make sure the names are all done in advance because uh, I will totally just blank and See, sit there. I am horrible uh, at putting together encounters on the fly. So I always try to have sort of my encounter concepts figured out ahead of time. Figure out what stat blocks I'm going to have, and I put them all in, you know, a a word processing document or, or whatever so they're all together and in the same place um, I'm not very good at just sort of pulling out and saying oh you're going to go here okay let me quickly search the compendium or through this book and find something that, that and put together an encounter that works I'm, I gotta have it figured out ahead of time otherwise I, I end up I'm, well I don't know I suspect I would end up putting together crappy encounters although I've never really done it so <laughs> yeah and, I, and I'm the same way I tend to put together um, you know I, I like finding monsters that fit kind of the appropriate place where the players are going to be and um, I use uh, the program the application master plan which is very helpful mm -hmm. for both um, organizing your a campaign and running encounters um, which I suggest for everyone out there to at least take a look at it if you're but, on Windows okay sorry. <laughs> you're on Windows I don't have a Mac um, but I mean my player in terms of tweaking monsters are really trying to fiddle around with them um, Mike Ritter made a really good point in his article today, or what, which appears today, um, that it doesn't really add a great deal to the experience, I think, for most games. Because um, for me as a player, and it seems like for my players, the monsters are just bags of hit points to kill as quickly as possible. Um, so trying to really take the time to, I mean, spending hours on a monster for your game when that monster might be dead in three rounds and it's I find That's, it more uh -huh. interesting to you know develop I think I need to get better at developing like well what's the villain gonna say or what's the environment like how to describe it more that's maybe a good point and, and you know a lot, of, a lot of times anymore and, and this is a new development for me but I'm finding oftentimes I'm actually redesigning monsters on the fly mid-encounter oh yeah so, so if I just find a monster that's kind of close to what I want then maybe I just make up the rest of it as I go, or you know, I, I fudge this power or I or whatever just to make it work, to make it fun and exciting and awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say like the whole the kill of the monster as quickly as possible. That's why you need to make your own monsters. So they... 
Well, right. I mean, sometimes. I, but then combat lasts longer. I so. found I found myself spending a lot of time just trying to design the perfect monster, so I can handle this, that, and whatever, and I, it's going to be awesome. And, and these powers are all going to evoke this kind of stuff. Or I can just pick a monster that's already there, maybe just boost it up a level or down a level or, or whatever I need to do to make it appropriate, and then just do the skinning and whatever and make stuff up as I go to, to change the powers and make it awesome for that moment because that's all I need it to be is awesome for that moment. I'm not publishing anything. Right. Yeah, and one, one good trick that I've, I've started using is when a monster gets bloodied, especially if it's just getting run over uh, quicker than I thought, that I'll just I'll have that bloodied um, distinction trigger some type of ability and I'll just make that up on the fly depending on kind of what that monster needs. Um, first one time I, I had the monster teleport because it needed to get it was caught in a bad place other times it's been sort of an immediate um, uh, melee attack so I you know you can adjust on the fly sure and the, the players never know mm-hmm. <laughs> you just throw in things maybe sometimes they do you know but that, that was actually the problem I had was that a couple of my players knew uh, monsters well enough that they were like, are you sure it recharges now? And I was like, yes, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, I have players all the time that'll be like, wait a minute, how does he do that? Read me the power. And it's like, does. he does that. I say it's in the power. Shut up. <laughs> and one of my players uh, is always calling me on that. And the other player, who's actually my, my rules lawyer, who I expect to get that from, is always like, you know what, let it go. It's fine. <laughs> you know, That's just the power. That's how it works. Yeah, and in terms of, of prep time, I, I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. It was actually... A couple of days before I found out I won that, that contest, so it was a very, it's a big range of emotions where I ran the worst session I've ever run before. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, it just was a bit of a train wreck. And then, so that was a low point, and then a couple of days later I won a contest, which was cool. <laughs> I kind of lifted my spirits, but I wrote about it, uh, the, I think I thought it was the agony of defeat, um, about how just disjointed the session was, that, combat was a mess, everyone was lost in terms of where to go and what to do. Um, and a player responded to me a couple of days later and he said, you know, we're just happy getting together and playing a little bit. Um, it was a comment that was very kind and took a lot of pressure off of, off of me because his point was like, it's just nice to get together with this group of people, kind of, you know, BS a little bit, play the game, kill a few monsters, mm-hmm. extend the story, and that that's that. They're not, you know, they're not looking for award-winning drama or um, anything anything else. He, he just, he was trying to inform me, like, hey, don't worry about it. Don't, don't beat yourself up if every session doesn't go perfectly because it's not going to go perfectly. Um, and I think that's just general good advice for DMs, not to not to beat yourself up. I think Again, like Shay had talked about being a lazy DM, uh, one one approach that I enjoy when I was in my training to be a psychologist, because there's a lot of burnout in that field, certainly, because um, everyone you know certainly wants to do the best they can for their clients. And there was uh, a book I read about being a B plus therapist, because we always try to be A plus at things, but you know just try to be a B plus DM, and you don't have to knock everything out of the park, and certainly. Be willing to share the load with your players um, in terms of getting them involved in role playing and, and other things around the table and for the game. Um, I think your idea earlier about having a player track the status effects during combat—that's like, great. You know that gets them involved. It's one less thing you have to do. Um, so not trying to be a superstar every every two weeks or every week or however long it is that you get together with your group. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think if anything else, um, at least what I'm going to try based off of this conversation is I'm going to try to spend less time working on my monster design for my <laughs> game. And I'm going I'm to replace that time by spending more time thinking about who are these monsters. And, and, and by that, try to, going back to the idea of player engagement, um, try to use that to launch them into more role-playing. Like, how are they going to react? How are they going to talk? What are they going to say? You know, get a little bit in, more into that aspect of them as not just monsters, but NPCs, and see if that uh, addresses both of those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've certainly started to do that, where I'll, I'll write out dialogue or potential di- dialogue ahead of time for monsters to, to communicate with, with the party, because when 
when combat starts, even though I'm using Master Plan, which is a great program and does a lot of calculations and things for you, you still get locked into what's this player doing? Okay, does it hit? What's this monster going to do to react? So, and I tend not to be great at improv in terms of trying to come up with snappy dialogue to say on the fly. Um, so last session, I kind of offhandedly said through a villain, you know, you're meddling in forces that you do not understand. And one of my players responded right away. He's like, that's what every bad guy says. <laughs> <laughs> and he was absolutely right. I do say that all the time, um, which is a problem. And I'm, one of my goals has been to actually help them understand what forces they are meddling with. That's what's coming up here the next session. Um, so it helps for me to write down some information. Now, maybe other DMs, they can just snap off uh, dialogue in the middle of combat, you know, without any problems. But for me, it helps to just prepare some of that and refer to it as the combat's going along. That darn Chris Perkins just sets the bar way too high for the rest of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it always comes back to Chris Perkins. It does. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I've noticed with the more recent 4E books is that they're they're doing a lot more with themes and other things that the players can pick that have a, a story behind them so yes. that it's easier for the DM to just pull that into the game because the player's already chosen that and, and decided that seems pretty cool or interesting. So uh, so now you have a, a wealth of uh, information to bring in. Yeah, I, I feel like the last year of D&D products has done a fantastic job of giving us the mechanics that support story in the way that I think a lot of people wanted them to early on. Yeah, there was a, a cool villain from the Shadowfell, which is where my group is right now, and there was just this little, I think it was one blurb that says, this villain really hates halflings. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime a halfling is involved, they're just going to go right after the halfling and you know talk very bad about them. And thankfully, my group has a halfling, so he was... <laughs> Um, that was a fun dynamic last session because he was getting wailed on by these bad guys and usually he's the rogue and he kind of darts in and out of combat but he was in bad shape for a few rounds so that was that was fun that I think thinking about things like that is, is really good and you know what I've what I've done is to ask the players to help with kind of building the story a little bit you know I've players have either sent out emails about recaps from their players point of view or having you know, in in between session uh, role playing situations where they're going around the town asking questions or interacting with each other. Um, so you can even send out a you know a question about you know, given the last the events of last session, how did how is your player responding to it, and where what is their intention going forward? Um, and that can really give you some good information about where the where the players are coming from, about what they expect to happen, and what they'd like to see happen. And then you can kind of play with that during the next session. Right on. Well, I'm tapped. Any other thoughts on uh, prep time? I'm good. <laughs> I guess in some ways do less, which would be doing more. <laughs> <laughs> or, and I don't know that it's necessarily do less. I mean, some people really enjoy taking the time to build the maps. And if you're having, oh, yeah. If you're having fun with that then do that. If you really enjoy the monster design, which sometimes I do, um, then do it, you know, but don't kid yourself and think that you're doing it all for the game. You know, you're doing it because you enjoy doing it. Yeah, and I th that, that's a good point. I think there's two different kinds of preparation. Preparation that, that you enjoy just because you like being in that world or doing that activity and preparation that's actually helpful to run the game. Mm -hmm. And that might not always be the, the, same, the same thing. So I think certainly communicate with your, I'm always a big proponent of communication and you know talk to your players about the components of the game they like best and you can also judge that just without asking but just seeing when you have a session when are people most engaged you know are they engaged during really epic combat situations are they engaged when there's a really cool story element going on and there's a pretty uh interesting npc that's interacting with them so you know listen to your players and respond to that it all comes full circle <laughs> it all comes the prep time all comes back to player engagement huh yep it's all the same thing <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> all right don't give away all our secrets i don't have any secrets 
So uh, we would like to thank our sponsors, GameReady.com and Continue Magazine, as well as Michael for coming on. Uh, Michael, do you want to give a shout out again to where people can find you on the internet? Certainly. Again, my, my blog is the idm at WordPress, at WordPress, the idm.wordpress.com, and I'm at the idm on Twitter. And you can certainly send me an email, um, the idm at gmail.com. And I try to respond to any comment that's left on my site or any email that's sent to me or any tweet that's offered in my direction. So I really enjoy uh, meeting everyone that's out there and talking about games and other geek stuff and uh, occasionally the Philadelphia Flyers, but they got eliminated recently, so I don't really talk <laughs> about them anymore. I'm bummed out about that, but you know, one of these years, one of these years it'll happen for them. Very good. Uh, so that's how people can get a hold of and find you. If people want to get a hold of and find us, they can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com, unless it's about the episode 200, in which case Tracy wants you to email her at Tracy at saradarkmagic.com. And you can call us at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Uh, and you can swing by our forums at GamersHavenPodcast.com. Find the show notes at thetomeshow.com. And that is episode 195, where we learned how to be engrossed in our game and DM on the fly in this episode of... The Tome. 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 I'm on the wall.